Hey everybody, it's Kendall from Recording Lounge. It is the 29th of June, 2011. Um, we're actually in a midpoint here where I'm just waiting for a couple of changes on the last Mark Endert show, uh, which should be releasing very, very soon. Um, edited a couple things and been double-checking with Mark and, you know, sending it back and forth and, you know, maybe changing the order of a couple things and everything. However... That's coming. Don't worry about that. I hope everyone enjoyed the first show. I've gotten some good feedback on it. It's a really great interview. So if you guys want to go check out the first show and then uh, whenever the second one comes out, definitely check out that too. And in between the interviews, I wanted to do a show um, about something that I've been getting a couple of questions about. Not a ton, but something that I have gotten a request to do a show about and that is the master bus. What's on it? What do you put on it? Compress it? Limit it? Whatever. Um, there's a lot of questions that go on with the master bus and what to do for master bus compression, if you do any or whatever. When to do master bus compression. When to do master bus EQ. So I'm going to try to tackle these things in a way that makes sense of them for you. Depending on the genre of what I'm doing, it would change. My master bus chain might change if I was doing something folkier as opposed to something heavy rock or as opposed to something metal or uh, whatever. So it definitely changes per genre and you have to take note of that. And the, the better you get at mixing, the better you get at these, uh, these different types of techniques, the easier it will become for you to discern what do I need to change now? What, what types of things do I need to change in order to get the sound that I want and what's too much for this genre, what's too much for this genre or not enough for this genre. Uh, so um, first we're going to talk about compression. And this is going to be the bulk of the show because compression is one of those confusing mystery demons about audio that just confuses a lot of people. Um, to this day, even professionals talk about compression to help each other understand their different methods and how they view compression. Though a very simple idea, it's a very complex process. The idea is that for whatever decibel you know, ratio that you set, like 4 to 1, in a 4 to 1 ratio, there's 1 decibel of output per 4 decibels of input. Simple enough. The attack time says when the compressor comes in, and the release time says once the audio has passed back above the threshold, this is how long it will take for the compressor to stop compressing. The problem is these things don't really tell us anything about the sound that these things get. Compression is not just about controlling. It's about giving a sound and a, and a feel and a texture and a vibe and, a, um, and, a, and just getting compression to move the sounds in a way that you couldn't do without it. And uh, obviously, in the opinions of the golden ears, using no compression would be the best route, just as playing things really well doesn't need compression often. I have a my session drummer that, I, that I've worked with, and we've done a couple of shows with him playing on it. He uh, is such a good drummer. Often I use the most minimal compression on him. Sometimes I don't compress anything except for, you know, the room mics and the drum bus. I don't even compress the kick or snare. Now, often in a rock mix, I, I have to, but um, the truth is, I even in a rock mix, I don't have to compress him very, very much because he plays the drums the way that they should be played for the song because he's very experienced and he knows 
what parts of the drum kit to accentuate when. He knows how hard to hit. He knows how to balance himself, which is one of the biggest things. So we're going to talk about compression on the master bus. And we're going to talk about how it changes the sound. And we're going to talk about why to use it, when to use it, what time of the mix to use it, when not to use it. Um, and then we're going to shift into EQ because that would be the most logical next step. Sometimes people put EQ before compression, and that's okay too. There's no right or wrong here. Then we're going to talk about some other various parts about the master bus, and then we're going to talk about limiting last because that's a very debated topic that I have some interesting thoughts on. So let's get started. So compression on the master bus, the first thing I want to talk about is when to put it on. Or if at all. A lot of times people feel like you got to put compression on the master to control the whole mix, per se. And that's fine and all. Then there are two main schools of thought. And I have had success with both of them. So I don't, I don't subscribe my, uh, good uh, mixes to ones that I have done a certain way because I've done good mixes with both. And I've done bad mixes with both. Um, so I find that it's just a matter of taste. And sometimes it's something that goes in stages. Sometimes you use this type of compression or you put on compression at the beginning of the mix, you know, for an entire year. And then the next year you decide, you know, I don't really like it putting on compression at the beginning. Maybe I'll put it on towards the end. So the two main schools of thought on this, I'll actually talk about three, but the two main schools of thought are putting compression on at the beginning of the mix stage and then putting compression on towards the end of the mix stage. Not necessarily at the end, but towards the end. The third school of thought is putting it on somewhere in the middle, not done very often. If it's put on in the middle, it's usually very subtle, or it seems like it's something that was done almost on a whim. Usually compression is one of those things that needs to be very intentional, otherwise it can sound terrible, um, if that makes sense. Basically, if you put compression on and just use a preset, there's a decent likelihood that your mix is not going to sound how you want it to sound just because everything's different. Every single thing is different. And one preset for one instrument is not really going to make it how you want it. Sure, it might get you close, but if you don't understand compression, you're going to get nowhere. I'm sorry, but the best mixers in the world right now understand every element of it and they talk about it and write articles about it. Um, so, you know, don't, don't just think you can slide by by using presets. So, we're going to talk about when to put compression on and then why I like to put compression on where I do. When I start my mixes, I will push up, push up some faders. I usually start with the drums and so I'll push up like, I usually start to push up the main instrument or, uh, you know, like which is a guitar or maybe a piano or, or whatever. Uh, and I push up like the drums and, 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 and just start listening to things. I usually get a rough balance starting there. So I'll push up the guitar and the bass and the drums and then uh, add in the other guitars and then add in the other keys and whatever. And then I get a rough mix of it. And what I do right then is I save the session and say, you know, rough balance. Save it as a rough balance. And I do things quickly. I do things very, uh, very naturally. I don't try to think too hard about things. I'm just like, okay, you know, guitar 100% left, other guitar 100% right kick center, snare center, you know, toms, I pan a little bit, overheads left, right, stuff like that, basic, simple stuff. 
I'm doing things on impulse. I'm doing things that sound good to me. And I run through the song, you know, I don't know, two, three, four, ten times. I don't know. Who knows? As many as it takes to get myself a rough balance. Usually it only takes about 10 to 15 minutes. So maybe three or four times. And uh, I run through the whole song just kind of making changes as I go. I don't do any automation, but I just kind of get up, get up the balance. I don't have a limiter or anything on my master bus at this time. And part of this is good gain staging on the recording side, but part of it is good gain staging in the mix side. My master bus does not hit anywhere above about negative 10. And that's because, not because I'm keeping my fader super low, even if I have a session with 60 plus tracks, which seems to be the most common thing these days. Sure, I'm not getting sessions with 100 and something, but, you know, my sessions are often about somewhere between 40 and 70. And, you know, I, I make sure that my master is not clipping in any way, shape, or form. And I usually do that by trimming down my trim control. I work in Nuendo a lot, and there's a trim control on each channel strip. In Pro Tools, there is not. But I will trim down that first, and, uh, you know, especially if something's hitting really hot, I make sure none of my tracks are really hitting a ton above maybe negative 18, negative 12 dBFS. And, um... So I can see that on the meters, and I and I arrange that with my trim controls. Then I can use the faders at a, at a good level, and I don't have to push them way, way low. And so I do that so that my master bus is not clipping whatsoever. I like to give myself somewhere between 6 and 10 decibels of headroom before anything is on the master. Because invariably, things will raise a little bit in volume as the mix goes on. So by the end of the mix, I like to have about 6 decibels of headroom where you know my my hottest peaks are hitting maybe negative five negative six even with compression and that's because I want to give the mastering engineer plenty of room to work with um, and I also want things to just be really dynamic I so, so, so the so the mix is having about let's say six decibels of headroom or let's say you know after you get your rough balance if your mix is not having that you can't just put a trim control on the ma on the master you can't just put a limiter on the master that's not how it works you need to turn your tracks down you need to trim them down put it put it as the first plugin you know put your put a eq as your first plugin and and only change the output don't do any eq on it or put a trim control in pro tools or put a uh, you know some volume plugin i don't know as your first plugin in the chain uh, often for me, my first plugin in the chain is an EQ. Uh, not always, but but generally uh, is an EQ doing little little tiny changes. I mean, one two decibel changes, or or mainly filtering. That's that's my main part in doing that. I like to do high pass filters on a lot of things just so that it cleans up the low end for the bass and the kick drum. But I will use that as my trim control, and so I'll turn down uh, that, or or I'll turn down the actual track trim in Nuendo and Cubase if I'm working in Cubase which is at the top there's that little knob and that's how it is on a console too you know you can turn on the trim control so that your faders become a little more usable and uh, so then once all of my levels are set there and I'm getting a good balance like I said I save a rough mix of it and uh, that's just a formality I do that so that I keep my impulse there now this is the point where people sometimes choose to add compression. 
And I, like I said, I've done mixes where I do add it here, and I do it after my rough balances. I don't do it before the rough balances. I do, I do the rough balances totally dry. Nothing there, totally dry. I'll start bringing things up. I'll, you know, do my pans and my volumes and my trims and uh, get my master level really good, making sure I'm not clipping or peaking or anything. And this is the vital point where you choose to add compression at the beginning, generally. Not always, but generally. Some people put it on when they open up the session. I don't know. But to me, this is the point when you choose, okay, am I going to add compression on my master? I've done my rough balances. Now I'll add compression to the master and get the mix going a little more. One benefit to this is you kind of get the mix pumping a little bit and have some vibe and have some punch to it. So you can feel also as though you don't need to add so much compression to the individual tracks, which can be a very good thing. However, sometimes you do this and it starts to compress the mix too much and then you keep mixing through it and it starts to sound really weird. I remember uh, listening to an interview with Charles Dye and he said that he loves to put compression on at the beginning of the mix and mix through it and um, will feel like if he takes the compressor off towards the end, it might make his mix fall apart. And often it, it, it might very well do that. And that's good and bad. If I mean, obviously, if you leave it on and your mix doesn't fall apart, then who cares? But the bad part of that is you could be missing something because you've been hearing it through compression the whole time. So there might be something with way too much low end. There might be something with lots and lots of dynamic that's actually hurting your sound like too much like the like the drummer didn't play the snare drum tight enough and even enough he played it too too varying um there are lots of different scenarios that can happen so to me that is why i choose not to put compression on at the beginning of the mix because i feel like it can mask certain things during the mix process that you don't hear and so you say like man this mix just sounds something's wrong with it and then you take off the master compressor and then you hear it and you're like wow those drums are too loud those drums are way too loud and I kid you not this has happened to me that happened to me probably 10 times on 10 different mixes before I actually realized what was going on and I was able to go back and fix it luckily I was still working on them it was a big process of, a, of an album of, of two EPs each with five songs and I was like, man, both of these sound different to me. Something's wrong with them. I don't know. And it, I guess it, a lot of times it happens during the recording process. You add a compressor to the master to impress the client and make sure that they're happy, they're smiling, and that they feel it. That's, that's an important thing for me. When, I, when I'm recording a client and I'm the one that's going to end up mixing it, sometimes I'll pop a compressor on the master so that they feel like it sounds a little more done. When in reality, you know, as soon as they leave, I'm going to push down the faders and start from scratch. But I want them to, you know, get a vibe and they're like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Anyway, so uh, I have to tell myself to take that compressor off because I feel like it masks what's going on a lot of times. Not always, but sometimes it does. I have worked on some folk mixes or some really sparse mixes, and I've popped a, a compressor on the master and not had to compress anything. I just do a lot of automation. And sometimes that works amazing for acoustic music, piano-based music, jazz music. Just putting a compressor on the master and that's it. Is compression on the master mastering? 
I don't think so. I think limiting on the on the master bus is mastering, but we're going to get to that in a bit. So now, kind of revolving things around to the other side, where you put compression on towards the end. Often compression on at the very end is not really done. That's more of a mastering thing. But compression towards the end, like once you feel like the mix has gotten pretty good, things have been compressed or EQ'd or you know you have reverbs or delays going, things are going all over the place and you got even some automation going. A lot of times what I'll do at this point is put a compressor on the master doing just a little bit. And I like to do that because it seems to control anything else that was sort of popping out of the mix at this point. I like things to pop out, but I don't like things to seem out of place. And thus, I will put a compressor on maybe three quarters of the way through the mix. So like I do my rough mix, which might be called like the first quarter of the mix, you know, 15 minutes. And then the second quarter of the mix is a long time, easily a couple hours, three, four hours. And, um, you know, if I'm doing a mix straight in one day, it might take me a good day to do a one solid mix start to finish. And so, uh, you know, the next three or four hours, I'm just getting myself a good mix and everything. And then the next couple hours, I might be starting to do some automation, a little more specifics, you know, getting into the nitty gritties, adjusting compression on individual instruments and really hearing things. Uh, you know, adjusting what I've already done. So when I first put up compressor on the kick drum, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of get it going where I feel like it sounds good, and then I'll, I'll just kind of leave it for a while and sit with it. And then at the at the third quarter, I'll really try to you know fine tune it and make sure that that compression is working with the compression on the kick drum and the bass guitar together, and then the electric guitars and the acoustic guitars and, and the vocals. Um, and the fourth quarter of the mix when I really start doing the fine-tuning on the vocal and the fine-tuning on the automation, which is usually my last part of the mix, is when I will put the compressor on. I'll put the compressor on right before that fourth quarter. And that's usually, like I said, focusing a lot on the vocal, focusing a lot on automation, focusing a lot on fine-tuning things, um, you know, really looking at the turnarounds, really looking at the sections between verse and chorus and the sections going from chorus to verse and the sections going into the bridge, really looking at the song, getting back to the original focus that I had in the first quarter, which is impulse, you know, getting back to the song, the music, just feeling it. So, you know, it's like my first quarter, and this isn't based on time, as you've noticed, because the first quarter is short and then the last quarter is are longer, but it's based on feeling. So the first quarter is based on impulse. The second quarter is based on, you know, actual getting actually getting a good mix. Third quarter is based on fine-tuning some things and getting some good, really, uh, you know, a little bit of automation, getting things really tight and understanding how the relationships between the instruments together are really making the mix good. And then the last quarter is going back to just loving the song. I need to love the song. And... I need to find elements in the song that I love. And so usually what I do at that point is I put on the compressor right before I start those last changes to the vocal and the automation and the tiny, tiny changes to, you know, sends and returns and reverbs and compressors and EQs, etc. And at this point, I'll put on the compressor 
because I want it to give me a little bit more punch and excitement in this last stage of the mix. And I also know that at this point, I could do without the compressor. That's why I like putting compression on at the end. I could do without it because I've done the whole mix up to this point without it and it's sounding pretty good. So I could do without it and I could just leave that all to the mastering guy. Um, unless the mastering guy is me, in which case sometimes my master bus changes if I'm the mastering guy. A lot of times these days working on smaller indie projects, they will pay you to do everything. And that's something that is really developed in in the project studio world is they'll be like, okay, well, we don't really have money to send it off, so we'll just do it all at your place. And, you know, that changes the job description because then you got to be all three. You got to be the recordist and the mixing engineer and the mastering engineer. And so here we are again learning all kinds of different facets of the industry. But so at this point, I like to put on the compressor and hear what it does and what I find often is that if I put a compressor on at the beginning of the mix, especially in a rock mix, I will want to compress it more than I would if I were to put the compressor on at this three-quarter point where I feel like I'm just doing a little bit of compression, like two decibels maybe. Um, and the, my, usual, my ratio is usually low and uh, my attack time is usually slower, like eight. 10, 12 milliseconds, somewhere in there. And my release time is, depending, usually faster. Uh, not, I mean, not quick. I wouldn't call it a quick release. I'm talking uh, somewhere between 100 and 500 milliseconds. And it's often, not always, but often it's timed with the song. And uh, you can do that with an equation and see what uh, what the closest millisecond. Some compressors don't have you know, a super variable thing, but you can watch the meters and see which preset, you know, be it like I know on one of the most popular compressors to have on the master is the SSL bus compressor, which I like a lot. The hardware one I prefer and the the plug-in version is pretty good too. And the release times on that are, I believe, 100 milliseconds, um, 300 milliseconds, 600 milliseconds, and then 1.2 seconds. And then there's like an auto function. Uh, so uh, those times might not really line up per se with the song that you're doing, but my best advice, other than synchronizing the release time to the tempo of the song, which is what I like to do a lot on the master, uh, and we learned from Mark Endert in the first, in the, uh, maybe it's first or second, I don't think it's the second interview, that, uh, he actually likes to time his release times of his compressors on almost everything to the song. So on the uh, on the master though, I've, I like to do that and time it to the to the tempo of the song and make sure that my release is releasing at a good time. And a lot of compressors that people use don't have specific times, like I was saying. So you have to just kind of play around with the release and see which one sounds good. In my experience, I I like the uh, SSL compressor. I like the uh, API 2500. I like that too. That's a really cool bus compressor. Neve 33609 is cool. Um, and on all those, there's there's different release settings that you can mess with. And uh, and again, it's it's something that you just have to hear and feel. And, and, and to help you out, watch the meter. Watch the meter as it releases. Um, usually on bus compressors, there's a VU meter. Most analog compressors there is at least. 
and you can watch the release. If it's a good one, it's probably in good time and it will release correctly with the release that it's been given. So um, you can watch the needle as it moves and it should be somewhat moving with the tempo of the song and that should give you at least a good starting point where you feel like maybe that's where I should leave the compressor. But use your ears. Okay, so now we've talked about when to put the compressor on, beginning versus end, or closer to end. Now we're going to talk about why to put compression on and, and why to even do it in the first place. Like we talked about just a bit ago, sometimes it feels like you can get the mix going quicker. It feels like you can get a good balance going without having to put so much compression on individual instruments. Another reason to put compression on, uh, no matter when you put it on, is just to get the song louder. Um, unfortunately, that's a big problem these days. The loudness wars are still raging on, unfortunately. But obviously you can put a compressor on a track to get it louder. Now, again, be very careful about how much you're compressing on the master because it can really literally ruin your mix. Your master bus can ruin the mix if you do it wrong. And sometimes what you need to do is bypass the plugins on the master and just listen to it without them. Just to check all your bases, make sure that uh, you know, you're really mixing through what you think you're mixing through. So if you have a slower attack and a faster release, like let's say a 10 millisecond attack and 300 millisecond release, what you're doing is bringing up the RMS level of the track because it's letting the transients come through in that 10 milliseconds, like the drum hits come through, and then it's compressing sort of the in-betweens and bringing those up. So what that effectively does is bring up the average level of your mix. Now, on the opposite side of the coin, if you do a faster attack and a slower release, um, or even a faster attack and a faster release, what you're doing is preventing the peaks from coming through. So you're, you're doing sort of more of a, uh, of a Fairchild-style compression where you really control the attacks and give it a nice, solid sound. One of the reasons people like Fairchild compressors so much in the analog world is that they, they have a very fast attack, and generally people would set them to a medium or slower release, and it's because it's got a really cool, um, just controlled sound, and it can get things sounding really, really nice and tight. And especially like vocals and acoustic guitars, it can sound really nice and bass too, really keeping the level solid. And uh, same thing with the compressor called a Gate Stay Level. Uh, Retro is a company that makes a recreation of that now. However, the attack on that was a little slower, but the release was really slow. I want to say the release was something like uh, three seconds. Or, or maybe I mean, two, you know, 2.2 seconds or something. And the attack, I think, was in the 30s, 30 millisecond range. And that compressor would was originally made for radio. And it would basically come in slowly, yes, but really control and keep the level very controlled throughout. So sometimes people use that on vocals and bass and stuff like that. Often not on the uh, master or anything, but... Getting back to the point, I you can use the compressor to get the sound you want. Like I said, a faster attack and a slower release will control your peaks and keep it a solid level. A faster attack and a faster release will control your peaks but also kind of bring up the 
bring up the energy in the song, and this is a tricky one because this always doesn't this doesn't always sound good. Fast attack, fast release. Um, it doesn't always sound good, so be careful. My 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 experience in stereo bus limiting is to either have a slower attack and faster release. Um, you know, like 10 milliseconds and then 300 milliseconds for the release or a faster attack and slower release like maybe uh, one millisecond attack and then maybe uh, 600 millisecond release or or something like that depending on the song, again, try it please try it, don't just take these exact numbers that I've tried you know, and just parrot them and use it on your own thing and you know, we don't need an industry full of parrots that just repeat what everybody else is doing. Please try these things and please try them. Try to learn and listen from them. Um, try putting it on your mix early and then try putting on late. One really th- good thing I encourage you to do is start with a decent uh, compression, maybe two to four decibels at the beginning of the mix. Mix through it. Check your levels on it. Make sure it doesn't, you know, push too hard. And then take it off at the end and hear what it does to your mix and hear if it has changed your mix. Now maybe, like I said, you could leave the compressor on and the mix sounds great, so who's complaining? But it is interesting to see what your mix can potentially mask with the compressor on the master. So, last thing I really want to talk about with compression is, you know, when not to use it when you don't have to use it at all. One of the joys of working with really fantastic musicians is that compression becomes a lot more of a finesse sort of thing than it is a crutch. What happens when you work with musicians that aren't as solid is that you find sometimes that compression needs to be used to control the dynamics, as in they don't play their kick drums even or their snare drums even or their toms don't sound punchy enough because they didn't hit them in the right way or they didn't use the right type of stick. You know, Maybe they used a, a beefier stick when they should have used a lighter stick or maybe they don't play with enough finesse to draw the tone out of the toms by snapping their hand back quickly. One of the problems with a lot of drummers is they lay into the drums and they leave the stick there, which doesn't allow the tom or snare or whatever to resonate. And so if you hit the kick drum or hit the snare or whatever and release really quickly with your hands, the drums can the drum can ring freely. And uh, so all those little things have, have a big part in the mix. And I can tell you from experience, when you finally work with good drummers, you won't have to do a lot, you know? A lot of times what I'll do is put compression on the drum bus and then compress the room mics and maybe the overheads and then everything else, if I do compress it at all, it's really, really subtle stuff. I mean, two decibels, one... I mean, just subtle things. Lower ratios, you know? I, I can really do compression subtly at that point. And it's because the drummer has played it well or the bassist has played it well or the guitarist has played it well. Um... In modern music, you almost always have to compress the vocal uh, or very, very carefully ride the faders. But, you know, it's not always going to happen, but almost every time uh, you're going to be compressing. If nothing else, it seems like the things that you're going to end up compressing are the kick, the bass guitar, and the vocal. Those seem to be the main things that you're always going to have to compress. And uh, anyway, so... 
you sometimes do not have to use master bus compression when your band is really, really good. And not to say that you do need to use master bus compression when your band is bad, but I'm saying that why use compression if you don't need it? That's all I'm saying. I know it's part of creating a sound, but generally if the band is really, really good, and I'm not talking about you know your average band that you're like, oh yeah, man, they're really good. I'm talking about a band that blows you away and you're sitting there saying, what do I need to do to this mix? I, I'm having trouble figuring out what I need to do. That is when often using compression on the master, you need to make sure and question yourself and say, am I putting this on because it's a habit or because I need it? That's a, ba- that's a bad slippery slope to fall down in the, uh, in the audio world is putting things on as a habit, doing things as a habit. Habitual acts like putting a compressor on the master or always compressing the guitar or always compressing this or always EQing this. Sometimes they always have to happen. I find that I almost always have to do some pretty heavy EQ on kick drums to get them to fit right depending on the track. Sometimes you want it really clicky. Sometimes you want it really dark. Sometimes you want it really boomy. Every song seems to have a different kick drum sound, so I feel like kick drum always needs compression and EQ to sound right. Um, bass guitar always needs compression in my opinion it just seems like it always does Uh, even if it's just a little but putting things as a habit can really get you in trouble and so change the amount of compression try a mix without compression try it with different attack and release times try it with lower ratios try it with higher ratios try it with you know experiment That's, that's all I'm saying so next For a short while, we're going to talk about EQ on the master bus. Why do we use EQ on the master bus? When do we use EQ? Me personally, I like to use EQ on the master bus every now and then, but I don't make it a habit, um, not because it's not a good thing. I just feel like a lot of times I don't need to. Again, mainly because of the same reasons that uh, I don't put compression on at the beginning. I don't want to mix through an EQ only to find that three or four of the instruments actually were having a, a, a resonance issue or something that they were you know, resonating at a weird frequency or they sounded boxy individually and rather than having to take a certain frequency out of uh, the whole mix, I could have just done it out of a couple instruments and it would have solved the problem. The other school of thought is, of course, you can put an EQ on the master and the whole mix can already start to sound better without having to touch a single EQ on an individual fader. And that is also a very, very good argument. And I've done that before. And in my opinion, the best time to put EQ is not only before the compressor, physically before the compressor, you know, if your compressor is insert number one, you know, move it down to insert number two and put the EQ first. I like to put the EQ before the compressor, but I also like to put it on Uh, If I do use EQ, I like to put it on at that beginning stage. Um, So often what I find, if I do use compression and EQ on a mix, what I'm telling you is that a lot of times I will put EQ on early in the mix and put compression on later in the mix and I put it after the EQ. However, sometimes I've done mixes where I've put compression on um, at at the end of the mix and then put EQ on right after it. Sometimes EQ on the master bus doesn't work at all. In all honesty, my 
trend in the last year or two has been to not put any EQ on the master. Instead, just to, you know, uh, put it on individual tracks or on or on group tracks or buses. And I find that that same sort of philosophy applies to buses. So, like, I'll I won't put any EQ on electric guitars, um, but then I'll send them all to a bus and then EQ the bus. So I basically am just putting one EQ over all the guitars. That's how I prefer to record electric guitars. I prefer to get the sound really, really good first and then don't EQ individual guitars unless they really need it and then put EQ on the guitar bus. So why do we use EQ on the master? Again, it's it's to shape the whole sound as a whole. Sometimes it's smart, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's the same type theory as... Uh, in car stereos, a lot of times there are EQ settings like country, rock, classical, pop, and it kind of gives the whole thing, the whole sound that you're listening to, a an EQ curve. And sometimes it can really help, you know, if you've noticed that in the car when you've switched it to something. Sometimes you can be like, oh yeah, that sounds much better. Another time you can say, you know, that, that song that came on actually sounded really a lot better without any EQ on it at all. So, again, it's a game. It's a give and take like everything in the audio world that you have to gauge and you have to be like an experimenting type person. And so, again, like I said, me personally, I don't find the need for a lot of EQ. A lot of times I'll just let that be with the mastering uh, if that if that is even an issue, and uh, again, kind of as a side note related to compression and EQ, I'm not a huge fan of putting like multi-band compressors on my master. If I'm sometimes when I'm doing mastering, I really like to do that, but in general, I like to just leave that for mastering. If I do it in the mix stage, which I have every now and then, it's really really subtle. But like putting like Wave C4 or like whatever or Linear Multiband or um, the Cubase and Nuendo Multiband Compressor or some of the other ones out there, I find that it's a little too much. It's a little too much uh, processing going on for me. I feel like it, it, it masks things again. Um, I feel like plugins with plugins on the master, it's kind of like painting. If you start using too many colors it all ends up looking brown and it really can be troublesome and uh, you have to be careful with what you use because it really if you use it subtly and if you use them in the right place it can really make the mix shine and be beautiful but if you use too much luckily in the audio world nothing is really permanent these days because of DAWs so you can just bypass the plugins and you know adjust your mix from there but again EQ on the master. Be careful with it. Be careful not to make too many rash decisions quick with it and be like, oh man, there's so much 1K. The mix is so boxy. Oh my gosh. And then you dip all this 1K and then, you know, you're like, oh, my mix sounds great. But then again, you're masking all these things. Um, my tip is to put to put EQ before compression on the master so that you're not compressing something that you don't need. If there's a lot of one kilohertz or a lot of you know hundred hertz or a lot of three hundred and fifty hertz or whatever, you could be triggering the compressor on that, and then when you EQ it, you're EQing it out of the signal. And so when you put an EQ before a compressor, you're controlling what you don't want in there, and then the compressor is compressing 
what you do want. Um, that's kind of like what we talked about in the preamp compressor show, the pre-EQ compressor chain. Now, I want to switch gears really, really quick and talk about some spatial processors on the master. And sometimes these are called wideners. There's a handful of them out there. Lots of different companies make them. Are they a good thing? Depending on the mix, yes. Again, that's a terrible answer and nobody wants to hear that. However, I have found sometimes on really dense mixes, a stereo widener can help. On a mix that has a lot of tracks, sometimes it can really open up the stereo image and, and give it some width. Again, it's subtlety. It's, it's very subtle. It's not getting all weird and phasey. Just do a little bit at a time and just listen to it. Listen to what it does. Sometimes uh, it can sound really weird on headphones when you use stereo wideners. Sometimes stereo wideners impart sort of a weird sound to it. So you got to be really careful to use one that's very neutral and is simply doing phase, uh, phase widening like it would be doing. Again, be very careful with the sorts of things you're using here. I know uh, there's a handful of them out there. So try them, you know. Uh, again, my preference is on a the, – the more dense the mix becomes, the more likely it is that I might use a stereo widener. Very rarely do I use a stereo widener on, on a really um, sparse mix. Sometimes it's not the case. Sometimes a sparse mix – uh, needs to have this really ambient sort of wide, big sound. And so sometimes that is what happens. Just be very careful because these are what I might call an unnatural processor. Not that any other processor like EQ or compressor is unnatural because it sort of is, but it's something that is messing with the phase um, in some way or another, even if it's very, very subtly. And you're kind of getting an interesting relationship between what your ears hear and what the speakers are producing. And it's, it gets very – it can get very trippy really quick if you're, if you're not careful. So just wanted to touch on that. Just I like them every now and then but not as a crutch. I Again, I only put these on at the end of the mix. I don't put them on ever at the beginning. I think it's kind of a dangerous thing to put them on at the beginning in my opinion. The very last thing I wanted to talk about before we go is limiting on the master bus. Don't do it. Unless you're the end of the line, you know, you might benefit from putting it on, but I wouldn't limit at all. I would put it on as more of a speaker protector than anything, um, you know, in case some track got accidentally turned way up and, you know, a kick drum hits and it pops your speakers. Um you know, I would use it as more of a uh, protection in that way. Sometimes I've done mixes where I know I'm the end of the line and there's going to be uh, no mastering engineer after me. I am the mastering engineer. And I'll put like a Waves L1 or a Waves L2 or something like that on the master. But I'm not doing any compression. I, I, I mean, I keep the threshold at zero and I keep the output level at, you know, negative point one or two. And I don't, I don't change it. I don't, I don't even care if it's if it's doing anything, and usually it doesn't because, like I said, I like to keep my peaks even at a fully completed mix around negative six, so I'm probably not even hitting it at all. But I do it as more of just like a protection sort of thing, just in case, you know, I accidentally, <laughs> you know, double click a, a a group track and it push pushes it way up in the mix and and 
gets really smoking loud. I don't want it to, you know, push really hot or anything. But in general, the only times I will ever put a limiter on the master bus is in the tracking stage, when, like I was saying earlier, when I'm trying to get the mix loud enough to impress the client so they're hearing it and they're like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Um, but I don't – I do not do it in the mix stage and I don't think it's a good idea for people to do it. Um, that's something that's definitely for the mastering engineer, something that should be kept separate. And one of the most interesting parts of this is uh, Bob Katz wrote a book called Mastering Audio. It's a really great book. It's a very advanced book. If you're not really sure about it, I would go read a couple of pages of it and see if it's something that is for you or not. But he has an interesting section in there that talks about the uh, magic red light clip removal, that when you put a limiter on a song or whatever, on the master bus, and you no longer get peaks, that magically you are not clipping anymore. However, a digital meter is a number reader. It says, if the level passes above this, I'm going to trigger a red light. And so when you put a limiter on, all you're doing is protecting it from triggering the meter. You're not protecting it from clipping. Think about that for a second. When you, I'll say it again. When you put a limiter on something, especially on the master bus, to protect something from clipping, you're not protecting the clipping. You're protecting it from triggering the meter. The meter is what you're focusing on, and you should not focus on that. You need to know that clipping is clipping, and if you're clipping your master, you need to turn your tracks down. And compression... You know, gain stage things correctly. We, we're, I'll, I need to have a show about gain staging or do your research on it. You know, I mean, I, I can't do a show about everything, but gain staging is really important. For example, on the master, if you're compressing two decibels, your output level on your compressor needs to be two. If you're compressing three decibels, your output level needs to be three. I mean, that's how it works. That's how gain staging on compressors works. That's how gain staging on... Lots of things work. When you're EQing something and you've done boosts and cuts, turn turn the EQ off and listen to it and then, you know, uh, turn the EQ back on and see. Some EQs don't have uh, output levels. One of my favorite EQs is the API 550s um, and I also really like the 560s. Uh, those are really awesome 500 series type compressor, I mean EQs and um, I really, really like the sound of those and those, those don't have an output volume. Um, many EQs don't have an output volume that are hardware. These days in the software world, most of them have an output volume. So gain stage those, you know? I mean, really really try to understand that levels and gain staging are, are very important and you know you can't you can't trick the computer. Um, it's it's a machine. It doesn't understand emotional things. Like I mean you can't you can't trick it and evade it. You have to do it logically and and understand what's going on. So you can't just put a limiter on the master if it's clipping your master and be like, oh, well, now it's not clipping. Because sure, it's not clipping, but you're still com probably compressing too much at that point. Um, you know, your mix needs to be controlled. It needs to be controlled enough and have enough balance where things aren't popping out like crazy. You're not getting drum hits that are 20 decibels above the rest of the mix or something crazy like that. I mean, sometimes my drum hits are just barely, barely above the mix because I like to mix drums loud in rock music. But anyway, so the point is, 
you can't trick your computer. Don't put a limiter on the master unless, you know, it's one of those things that you're not even limiting at all. If It's more of just for a comfort thing. But seriously, I, I do urge you to not put one on at all. And, uh, you know, the only time you need to use a limiter is in mastering. And I even prefer not to use a limiter in mastering, just a compressor and, uh, and a good volume fader. Um, so I hope the show has helped. I hope this master fader show has helped. Um, again, think about it. Think about what you're doing. I say this all the time, but think about what you're doing, you know. Put your EQs before your compressors or after, depending on what you want. Put an EQ before and after the compressor or don't have anything on the master bus. Again, my advice to you is to try try a couple of mixes like this. Try one mix with nothing on the master. Try a mix with EQ and compression on the master. And then try a mix with just compression, putting it on at the beginning, and then take it off at the end. I hope these suggestions have helped. Um, again, shameless plug for myself, I do mixing and mastering freelance, so if you guys are interested in any mixing mixing and mastering, I have a couple of people that have emailed me about that um, for rates and stuff like that. Please email me. My email is recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from listeners. I've gotten a lot of great questions recently, so please email me any questions you have about recording, mixing, mastering, acoustic treatment, um, mics, preamps, gear. If you're uh, one of one of my most popular types of questions um, is about buying stuff, buying gear. Like, what gear should I get? I'm at this level. I have got this gear. You know, what should I get? Should I? You know, what am I lacking? Do I need to treat my room? What do I need to do next? I love those questions. I really do. Um, so please email me, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. And look forward to the Mark Ender interview coming up very soon. Uh, I'm sure it should be here very soon. I wish I knew how long. But uh, like I said, we've been – me and Mark have been bouncing ideas back and forth and kind of rearranging the show a little bit and uh, editing and things like that. So um, – and he's a busy guy, you know. And so it was nice enough for him to come and do it in the first place when he's not mixing Maroon 5 and Gavin DeGraw, you know, <laughs> to come and do a lowly interview with a podcast done by a person like myself. So I hope that the first interview has helped. So go ahead and take a listen to that and look forward to the next interview. Send me your questions and I will talk to you guys soon.